episode one of the Inner Field Trip podcast. Hang on, hang on. Let me just luxuriate in this beat. Oh, just love it. Love it, love it, love it. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, and this podcast is designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. This is actually very exciting for me because the last time I produced my very own podcast was back in 2007. It was a podcast called Cubicle Divas, empowering women who work in offices. And 2006 would have meant that I was self-employed for about a year after having been reduced in force from the software development company that I worked for at the time, I actually welcomed it as a way to explore what was next. And I remember going to a outplacement firm that helped work or that who worked with people who were recently laid off. And I remember one of the workshops we're in and there was such a wild bunch of emotions in the room, some who are pretty upset at being laid off after giving 20, 25 years of service to one company. Others like me who welcomed it as a chance to explore something else and some who were kind of like in the middle. So it was rather interesting. So when I found out about podcasting in 2005, through a woman by the name of Penny Haynes, who I think today is a preacher or a church leader or something. But at the time, she was evangelizing the benefits of podcasting. And because I was looking for something new, and I'm an early adopter, I jumped on that podcasting bandwagon back in 2005. 2006, I was attending all these pod camps and was a co-founder of the very first PodCamp in Toronto called PodCamp Toronto and had a lot of fun planning that and putting that together. And then 2007, I published my very first book with a traditional publisher called Podcasting for Profit. The book is hopelessly outdated because a lot of the tools that I wrote about in the book either no longer exist or they've evolved Many of the people that I interviewed for the book, I interviewed about 50 podcasters at the time, and this was going back to 2007, and many of them are no longer podcasting, or if they are, they've evolved themselves in such a way. And once the book came out, I, for a little while, published and not published, but promoted the book and became known as a podcasting expert. But by 2008, I started focusing on another form of audio interviewing, which is virtual summits, and poured my attention into producing virtual summits for clients from 2008 until I officially retired in 2016. I mentioned this background because it helps to inform the body of work that I steward today. What I do today is I help highly sensitive people and deep feelers, people with gentle, tender, quiet personalities, explore unconscious biases in a way that protects their energy. You see, there's a lot of individuals out there who can't go to marches either because of distance or disability. There are people out there who become overstimulated very easily by loud sounds and shouts and crowds. And what I've noticed is that people will withdraw from the work of activism and advocacy, saying that they're feeling overwhelmed and anxious, that their nervous system is going haywire. And in my own work, as I decolonized and deconstructed the Lisa Renee that people said I was supposed to be based on my skin color, my gender, my nationality, my language spoken, and on and on and on I can go. That after I went through the tough work of waking before 5 a.m. for 365 consecutive days, where 
I started the process to write a book of fiction, but then it turned into a process to develop the character of me, Lisa. And in that process, I discovered that my sensitivities is actually a very good thing and that it had been diminished over the years because, not because there was something wrong with me, but because the world doesn't know how to operate when people lead from a place of empathy, compassion, and of course, sensitivities. So I now help to, I now work with sensitives and deep feelers so that they understand that what they're feeling when they watch yet another video of a person of African descent, a black person being harmed by law enforcement, that the feeling of disgust that they're feeling that causes them to withdraw to hide is actually based on their emotions and, and sorry, not just their emotions, but it's based on being so Im- overstimulated that it causes pain within their nervous system. And the more that we can reclaim our sensitivities, the more we can stand on the side of justice. And that's why it's so important for highly sensitive people and deep feelers to protect their energy because you can't enter every fight. You can't stand up for every cause. You can't fight against every injustice. But if each of us take a particular interest in a small area of injustice, then it's those small actions together that helps us to take down a system of oppression, which marginalizes people based on nothing more than their social and biological identities. If you're not familiar with the term highly sensitive person, you'll want to do some research and discover the work of Dr. Elaine Aaron. She coined the phrase highly sensitive person after years and years and years of evaluating her own clients through her therapy practice. And she noticed that some would describe becoming overwhelmed by certain sounds, certain scents, and certain stimuli. And that's when she realized that some of us are deeply impacted by violence that we see on TV. We're deeply impacted by loud sounds. Some of us don't like surprises. We get irritated when we have to do too much. And I know this sounds like I'm describing like anyone, But the fact that highly sensitive people can feel this in their nervous system and anxiety is built because they are hearing loud voices or they're sensing the change of energy in the room. Highly sensitive people can walk into a room and understand at an energetic level which two people in the room are actually arguing with each other, even though they're all smiles right now. So if you want to learn more, just take a look at, uh, uh, do some research on Dr. Elaine Aaron's work, Highly Sensitive Person. It's different from being hypersensitive. And that's a different terminology. And that's not what Dr. Aaron is speaking of. Uh, You can go to the show notes. I will link to her work. And therefore, you can study more. But one of the things that gives you a clue that you might be a deep feeler or someone who cares deeply, or if you're highly sensitive, is if you've heard any of these statements while growing up. You're too sensitive. Why are you so quiet? You're such a crybaby. Why do you take everything so personally? Speak up, speak up. If you've heard any of those statements, chances are you are highly sensitive. And as a result, The way that the world does activism and advocacy will overwhelm and overstimulate someone who feels deeply. And therefore, you need to find a way for you to be able to engage in the work of advocacy and activism in a way so that it's sustainable over the long run. I'm not interested in drive-by activists. (laughs) And what I mean by that is someone who is rah, 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 and and in the work today, and then as soon as the spotlight turns to another form of activism, then so too does their attention. I don't want people who 
feel as if they have to perform and show people how much of a of a ally they are. And then next week, they're back to their old practices. We see this over and over with a lot of businesses and companies that will say, yes, we stand for black lives. And then a month later, they they retract on all their promises or nothing has been done. We see corporations assigning and building lists. Man, I hate lists. Good Lord, I hate lists. Lists throughout history have not had a good connotation. Some of the governments around the world throughout history that have committed atrocities against their citizens are ones who had lists. So the concept of putting together a list really keeps it it really uh, disrupts my nervous system. And so whenever something happens out there where there's some sort of injustice, there's this flurry to put together lists. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember back in the day when Mitt Romney was running for the um, for president and he said he had a binder full of women. (laughs) And he was saying this in reference to how he has or has a lack of women on his on his committee, on his team. And he said, I have a binder filled of women. And it became a really strange meme because it was a strange thing to say. A lot of corporations will put together this list of of black, indigenous, and people of color that they can hire and, and assign to their boards. And then within a year, and there's studies out there, there's studies out there about this. Within a year, those same people that were appointed to the board or hired into the C-suite, C-level suite, are on their way out. They quit. They can't deal with it anymore. In fact, if you take a look and do some research, you'll find that those who are hired into companies to, in the role of diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, that that role is the most abused and the least listened to. And many people hired for DEI work end up not doing any more of it for that company. And so we really need to understand that the work of dismantling a system of oppression isn't something that can be done right now, but it's something that needs to be sustained over the long haul. In fact, because it took generations for these biases to take shape and take root, whether it's in an individual bias, which is an unconscious bias, or whether it's an institutional bias, and that's where the systemic biases come in, that it's going to take generations to unravel. And so to expect yourself to become anti-racist or anti-bias or anti-oppressive because you read one book or watched one film or did one writing prompt, you're setting yourself for disappointment. And that's where a lot of the withdrawing also comes from. People withdraw from doing the work because one, they feel overwhelmed and overburdened. But the other reason why is because they expect that because they check something off the DEI checklist, the diversity, equity, and inclusion checklist, that somehow all should be better. And then when people in your company or on your team when people online on social media that you're interacting with continue to complain about how they're left out, they feel marginalized, you throw up your hand saying, but, but, but we did this, we did that. Shouldn't you be happy? When in fact, it takes a sustained approach. And so the inner field trip is a concept around sustainability when it comes to exploring your unconscious biases. That you're here in the here and now, not because you're trying to dismantle something in the next hour, but because you are taking responsibility for the privileges, the unearned privileges that you've been given, so that you can raise anti-bias, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive children, so that you can teach in an anti-biased, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive way. So that when you go into your companies, your corporate culture is also anti-biased, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive. And it doesn't start by changing slave icons on packages. Well, actually, I take that back. 
that is a start. But when black people are saying, stop killing us, stop killing us doesn't equate to painting Black Lives Matter on a street in a busy thoroughfare. If black people are saying, stop killing us, it doesn't mean that you appoint the token black person to your C-level suite. Stop killing us means that there needs to be a cultural change. And because cultures are made up of individuals, individuals have to step back and say, what can I do to unpack my unconscious biases so that I become aware of the way that I'm being oppressive, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, and so on. With the voices that I will bring to this podcast, I hope that you will start to see the ways in which we can unpack our unconscious biases in a way that is sustainable. But also, because I take an anti-bias lens to the work that I do, the interviews that I will be sharing with you with some really smart, deep thinkers themselves, I hope that you'll see that the work of unpacking unconscious biases isn't just around skin color privilege, that to become anti-oppressive and anti-biased and anti-racist, you have to look at the totality of biases. And I know that sounds like enormous work. It sounds nebulous. However, when you see the traits that prop up a system of oppression and you start to work on dismantling your own biases regarding the characteristics of the system of oppression, you'll see that one small step each day will lead to a big breakthrough. An example I can give is that one of the traits of a system of oppression is this need for urgency. I had mentioned it before, that we need to do things quickly, that if something bad happens, you need to think yourself back to positivity and cite these declarations and boom, you are all healed and you're back into your positive, happy, joyous space. But a culture of urgency means that voices are not heard. A culture of urgency means that major mistakes are made. And a culture of urgency means that we ignore the harm that we cause because we're going too quickly. And so understanding that urgency is one of the traits of a system of oppression, the opposite would be to slow down. But you need to work through your unconscious biases that you hold around slowing down. Because to some, slowing down represents laziness. It represents a a lack of industry or productivity. And so when you can unpack and explore your unconscious biases around a culture of slowing down, then that's one way you start to dismantle your obedience to a culture of urgency. So the season that's going to come up, I have interviews with people that I admire, people that I have worked with for a while. I spoke to a white Jewish man about coalition building and how that's an important part of unpacking unconscious biases. I spoke to someone else about anger and she shared with me, she's of Taiwanese background, a Canadian of Taiwanese background. And we talked about anger and we talked about the way to use questions to engage in hard conversations. And we know that when it comes to systems of oppression, You can have really tough conversations, especially when someone is either not aware or they're aware and don't care. I spoke to another expert. She's a first-generation Canadian of St. Lucian descent and had a fascinating conversation about, about beauty and how we can maintain beauty in the light of the messiness of unpacking unconscious biases. A fascinating interview. I also had another interview with an educator who shared with me the ways in which parents, teachers, and caregivers, and anyone who works with children, how they can do what they need to do 
to raise children who are anti-biased, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive. Oh, another interview I did is with a white woman who's a mother of five biracial children. And there's a quote that she said to me about her daughters. She said, I can't raise them to be strong black women, but I can raise them to be free. Oh, what a stunning, stunning quote. And so we talked about the power of naming things and why naming is such a critical component to becoming anti-racist and anti-oppressive. So those are just some of the conversations that are coming up in the inner field trip. You may not recognize some of the names that will come forward, and that's okay. Instead, I introduce these individuals to you so that you understand context and understand that the work of becoming anti-biased and anti-oppressive is going to involve all your senses, and that's why you need to find a sustainable approach. So I'm excited to present these interviews to you. And especially if you're a highly sensitive person, if you're a deep feeler, if you characterize yourself with a gentle, quiet, or tender personality, these interviews will give you hope that there is another way to do this work, one that engages your thoughts and your body and your soul in a way that you don't burn out, and in a way so that instead of withdrawing to hide, you instead withdraw to recharge so that you re-enter the arena and you're ready to stand on the side of justice. After this break, I'm going to share a little bit about my origin story and how I came into this work. I shared a little bit before, but I'm going to do a deeper dive. We'll be back in just a minute. In this space, I will be sharing testimonials from patrons who have gone through the inner field trip experience through my exclusive community on Patreon. I could extol the benefits of becoming a patron. However, it's better if you can hear from someone just like you. Share what it's like to be guided by me on the inner field trip journey. The inner field trip is what I call doing the inner work. You may have heard that phrasing from time to time doing the work, doing the inner work. It can be quite confusing to know what that means, especially if you've been reading books, watching films, and participating in workshops designed to help you unpack your unconscious biases. The inner field trip is a combination of guided prompts and stream of consciousness writing. I deliver writing prompts inside the community on Patreon, and with my guidance, You use stream of consciousness writing to record what your inner oppressor says. Your inner oppressor is that part of you that bullies and shames you into submitting to the dominant culture. I've seen how powerful the inner field trip has been to those who participate in it. And in their own words, patrons will share with you how going on an inner field trip has changed how they raise their children, teach their students, care for their patients, write their books, and operate a business, just to name a few. You can join the Inner Field Trip community at any time. You pay what you can from four predetermined amounts, the least being $5 per month. For less than a boost on Candy Crush, for less than two days of your monthly Netflix membership, you can begin the work of protecting your energy so you can unapologetically stand on the side of justice. And when we're not doing the inner field trip, your monthly commitment goes towards helping to produce this podcast. Although $5 a month doesn't seem like a lot, when it's multiplied by hundreds of patrons, it means that I can hire someone to produce and publish the episodes, thus freeing me up to focus on the conversations. Because if we depend on me to research the guests, interview them, edit the audio file, upload it to my hosting platform, write up the show notes, edit the transcripts, and then post to my socials. Oh my goodness, I'm just getting exhausted thinking about all that work. I'll pod fade faster than you can say super crap of the delicious episodes. Say that 10 times. So to become a patron, head on over to www.innerfieldtrip.com and click on join the quest. Again, that's www.innerfieldtrip.com to become a patron.
and we are back. And so in the next few minutes, I want to share with you why I'm so passionate about helping you explore your unconscious biases using guided prompts and stream of consciousness writing. It stemmed from my year-long process to decolonize and deconstruct my own identity. See, I've been raised to believe a certain narrative, as I had explained before, around my social and biological identities. And what started as a process to write my first book of fiction turned into a process to question the stories that I believed around my race, gender, religion practice, language spoken, and so on and so on and so on. And so I saw how powerful that process was for me in coming up with questions to unpack and explore my own unconscious biases. And again, I woke at I woke before 5 a.m. for 365 consecutive mornings. And again, using the process of stream of consciousness writing, I recorded everything that my inner oppressor was telling me. It was a very difficult process. Some days I felt extremely satisfied with what came up. And other days I was in tears. Sometimes a memory took me that morning to write through. Other times it would take me a couple of weeks. There are some memories that I confronted that I didn't want to face. And then what I did is when I felt the courage to face it again, whether it was one week or one month later, then I'd write through that particular memory. I am not a therapist. And therefore, I don't do this work with the intention of helping you heal your childhood trauma. Instead, I analyze human behavior from a historical perspective. I went to university and fell in love. I actually fell in love with history as a discipline in high school. There was a high school teacher that I had. Her name was Mrs. Cohen. And she had this beautiful way of visualize or helping us visualize what history looked like. I remember sitting in my grade 10 history class, and it was the first time I've encountered Mrs. Cohen. And she went to the chalkboard. Yes, we were using chalkboards back then. And she drew a line. And at the front, at the beginning of the line, she put a plot point with the year. And that would be the event that kind of triggered what was about to happen historically. And then that's how she would help us to see history from a visual standpoint. And I love that method. And it caused me to fall in love deeply with history. It was interesting that I went on to university to study history And I graduated with a double major in history and Latin American and Caribbean studies. I had a fabulous, once I declared Latin American and Caribbean studies as one of my majors, I came across a really interesting professor. His name is Professor Trotman. I believe he's still teaching at York University. And he has this deep passion for Caribbean history or Caribbean history, depending on how you say it. And I It was, I remember sitting in one of his lectures, one of his first lectures, and it was there as a 20-year-old student that I discovered that not only did chattel slavery exist on the island of Jamaica, but it was brutal and violent and dehumanizing. And that event was so significant because four years earlier at 16 years old, while attending, while sitting in an American history class being taught by, and I won't mention his name right now because who he is is not, well, I was going to say it's not important, but it's really what he said that silenced me for about four years until I came across Professor Trotman. This history, he wasn't even a history teacher. He was one of the faculty members, I don't know, guess he needed something to do. I don't know. But he, his background wasn't even in teaching. But he was, he taught us American history. And of course, American history is taught where all the feats and activities are celebrated of white European men. But anything having to do with indigenous people or Chinese people or South Asian people or people of African descent were diminished. And of course, it was always around trauma. 
And so there was one single page on the contributions that those of African descent made to American nation building. And of course, it had to do with chattel slavery. I remember distinctly that out of a class of 20 students, there was about eight of us who were of African descent. There was one student who was African-American. The rest of us are descended from Africans who were enslaved uh, throughout the islands, throughout the Caribbean. And this teacher, I'll never forget, said, he stopped us because I guess he was waffling in his fragility. And he stopped us and he said, listen, unless you are directly descended from a an African held in bondage in the United States, you have no right to contribute or say anything about slavery. And so here's what's interesting. That comment silenced seven of us, seven of the eight black people in the room. And the only one who could continue speaking about this was the only African-American who was in that room with us. I don't know why it's not shared deeply amongst those who are descended from migrants from the Caribbean. I mean, when I speak to people who went to school in Jamaica, they will say, oh, yeah, we know about chattel slavery. We know about what happened on the island. But for some reason, that information is not passed on to those who leave the island, have children, and that information is not passed on to their descendants. And at the time, there was no internet. There wasn't anything that any of us could go to to say, let's validate or verify this information. So if you're thinking, well, why didn't you just Google it? Well, back then, Google did not exist. In fact, the internet, as we know it today, did not exist. Or it existed, but it was in a format that only those with really deep tech knowledge could actually access. I vowed... So again, it was four years later, sitting in a lecture hall being taught by Professor Trotman when he was teaching around chattel slavery in the Caribbean, that when I listened, I almost wept in that classroom, in that lecture hall, because I realized that due to ignorance and not knowing, I had been silenced four years earlier by a teacher who thought and held this impression that chattel slavery only existed in the American South. I vowed that day, as a 20-year-old student studying history, that I would never be silenced again. And there started my deep, deep interest in uncovering more about Caribbean history in general, but Jamaican history specifically. And that started my own journey in uncovering my family tree. There's only so much that my parents know about their parent or their grandparents. I mean, they know their parents, but they know their grandparents. And then anything outside of grandparents, many don't know. And it's not that they're shamed about their family tree. It's just that that information isn't passed on. In fact, if you still have access to your parents, ask them the name of their grandparents. They, your mom would have to remember four names. Your dad will have to remember four names. And unless there is some deep, deep interest in passing on the names of your ancestors, chances are mom and dad, your mom and dad, may remember one or two of their grandparents' names. Now you could take it even a step further and ask your parents, what are your great-grandparents' names? And those are eight names they'll have to remember on both sides. Chances are they won't remember any of them. So this isn't something that's only an issue amongst people of Caribbean descent. You'll find that even within your own family tree, there is a forgetting that has happened. And that forgetting can happen for many, many reasons. But part of unpacking your unconscious biases is to remember. Because it's in remembering that we create a better future for our descendants. And so as a 20-year-old, Again, I decided I would never be silenced anymore. I studied my family history tree. One of the questions I wanted to answer is, how did my mom get a French last name on an English-speaking Caribbean island? My mother's name, maiden name is French. And so that started my journey or my, my deep interest in 
uncovering that lineage. It's taken many, 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 many years. But as more and more records were made available online, and also with DNA research, I've been able to answer that question. And so on my mother's paternal side of the family is where the French ancestor comes in. And their history, uh, it was a, my fifth great-grandfather left the southwestern region of France. And this region of France bordered Spain. And so some some DNA reports I've had show that I have Basque ancestry. And so this ancestor left France, migrated to Martinique, then Guadeloupe, and eventually Saint-Domingue, which is present-day Haiti. If you don't know, Saint-Domingue at the time was considered the Pearl of the Antilles. In fact, there was a Seven Years' War that France and Britain went through where France lost. And as part of the treaty, France gave up French Louisiana. It gave up its hold on British North America, which is present-day Canada, and instead wanted to keep Haiti, Guadeloupe, and Martinique. And why? Because those three islands were considered the Pearl of the Antilles. The amount of money that France made from the sugar production on those islands was so much that it was able to stay, stay solvent. So in 17, around 1791, 1792 or 1793, I can't remember at this moment, I don't have my notes, but somewhere around that time, Haiti started a revolution which lasted around eight or 12, or sorry, 11 or 12 years, accumulating into its independence in 1804. And during that 11-year revolution, where those of African descent took up arms and did whatever they could against the white French on the island in order to persist for their freedom, many of the French whites on the island left. My ancestors, who were French, left during that time. And I have found primary sources that were scanned by a graduate student on the island of Jamaica that contain transcripts written in French by the Roman Catholic Church of Jamaica, which detail the different, the births, sorry, not the difference, but the births, deaths, and marriages of those French refugees from Saint-Domingue. And that's exactly what's written in those transcripts. And within them, I found the names of my ancestors. So that's how they arrived. Some French, especially the ones who are wealthy, known as les grands blancs, which the literal translation is the big whites, they were able to afford the trip, the longer trips back to France or to California, French Louisiana, which is present-day Louisiana, and uh, the northeastern states, particularly Pennsylvania. I believe that the attraction of California had to do with the gold rush. Some went to Louisiana because they could own plantations there, cotton and tobacco plantations in the state of Louisiana. And Pennsylvania, I'm not too sure, although a historian probably knows the answer. I don't know what was the attractive feature for French-speaking people to go to Pennsylvania. And then uh, the poor whites, they were known as les petits blancs. Literal translation is the small whites. They were the poor white people on on Saint-Domingue, which is present-day Haiti. And they could not afford the long trips to the United States or France. And so they fled to the closest Caribbean islands, namely Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Jamaica. So if you have, if you have ancestry in Cuba, Puerto Rico, or Jamaica, and you have a French last name in your lineage, chances are they were one of the refugees who left Haiti. So why am I telling you this? (laughs) I'm telling you all this because it just gives me pause because I am a second generation Canadian of Jamaican descent with Nigerian, Cameroonian, 
French, and Scottish ancestry. I have European and African DNA in my bloodline, which means that I have the blood of the oppressed and the oppressors in my lineage. This creates such deep nuance, because on the one hand, I'm upset at my European ancestors for perpetuating a system that dehumanized my African ancestors, and then at the same time, to reject portions of me is to reject all of me. And so I've struggled at times with this nuance. How do I accept all of me knowing that part of my ancestry and the reason why I have certain blood within my lineage is because of violence and dehumanization? And I understand that this is a nuance that quite uh, quite a lot of people do deal with. Some choose not to acknowledge that nuance and others are like me trying to grapple with the trying to grapple with this complexity in their family tree. It was in an interview that I listened to where Lila June was a guest that I finally had an answer I was looking for. Lila June is a singer, she's an artist, she's a songwriter, and she's of indigenous descent. And she shared in a podcast interview, which I'll link to in the show notes, how she's been able to heal the part of her bloodline where Europeans show up. And while her strategy isn't the strategy I use in my situation, hearing her explain the complexity that she had to deal with and the way that she's overcome that helped me in my quest to be able to heal that part of myself. And so now what I do is I use my example of having both the blood of the oppressed and the oppressors in my bloodline as a way to reach out to those who want to do the work of unpacking their own unconscious biases. It helps to bridge a gap in some way so that those who look at me, although they would judge me to be a black woman, to hear that I'm multi-ancestried and that I speak of all these multiple ancestries as a huge part of my identity, it helps to bridge a gap and it helps to bring them closer to understanding that that's what you will uncover. So if you look European and you have African DNA, I'm trusting and hoping that my explaining my own complex ancestry will help you to sit down, do the inner work and heal the parts of you that need to be healed. And a huge part of becoming a better ancestor is to take a look back and to take a look forward. It's the Iroquois nation that came up with seventh generation thinking. It implores us to look ahead at seven generations from now whenever we're making decisions. You see, I'm the seventh generation removed from my French ancestor, who left France, migrated to Martinique, then Guadeloupe, then Saint-Domingue in order to participate in the plantation economy. I doubt that my ancestor, my French ancestor, my Scottish ancestor, and all the other Europeans who participate in the plantation economy, I doubt that they looked ahead seven generations and asked themselves, well, what kind of world would I leave behind if I perpetuated propped up and supported a system that dehumanized humans. But here I sit. I'm seven generations removed from that slave owning ancestor. And I look ahead and I ask myself, what do I need to do now so that I become a better ancestor? And with seventh generation thinking, we bear responsibility to ask ourselves, What sort of generational curses, generational patterns can I break now so that those who come after me have a better chance? You don't have to have children to have seventh generation thinking. You don't have to give birth to biological offspring for you to be able to look ahead and ask yourself, what 
will be my legacy? And what will be the legacy that seven generations from now will speak of me? I wrote up an article, an essay on the four types of ancestors, and it follows the acronym FIRE. Familial ancestor is where you pass on your DNA and generational memories. But again, you don't need to have children or biological children to be able to pass something on. So I'll link to that essay in the show notes. We all bear responsibility. And it it could be something as simple as, for example, I do a lot of walks and hikes and, and mountain biking along the different trails throughout the greater Toronto area. If there's a large river, I peek to see if there's a trail. And if there is, I make a note and I come back with my bike or my hiking shoes and I make sure I hit that trail. So whether it's the Humber River, the Rouge River, which is out in Scarborough, the east side of Toronto, or Humber River, which is in Etobicoke, or Credit River, which is in Mississauga, and so on, that there is a legacy that I'm benefiting from that someone made a decision a long time ago that benefits me to today. So, for example, in the 1950s, prior to the 1950s, in the city of Toronto, people could buy land and build houses on the on the banks of the Humber River, Rouge River, and so on. But Hurricane Hazel changed that. Hurricane Hazel came in, I think it was 1955, 1956, and it came at night. It was the first hurricane which maintain its hurricane strength inland. And so when it hit the province of Ontario, it was at full strength, well, as full strength as a hurricane can be inland. And many people died in their homes because it came late at night when people were in bed. And what the hurricane did, it swelled all the rivers. And then because the rivers were swollen, the water rushed through and and destroyed all structures in its path. So again, many people died within their homes as a result. The city of Toronto passed a bylaw preventing any business or homes from being built within a certain number of meters of the river's shore. And so instead, because it's now public lands, the city of Toronto has done what it can to build Uh, walkable and bikeable trails so that generations of Torontonians can benefit. You see, that's an example of seventh generation thinking. I mean, it came out of tragedy, which is very heartbreaking. Uh, If you read any newspaper accounts of the day, you'll see that some of the victims were very small, not very small, but very young babies, young children. And it's so sad and people just didn't know it was coming. And, you know, so it's sad. The tragedy of why these this decision was made comes out of something very, um, very, very upsetting. However, the city of Toronto made a decision in the 50s that I get to benefit to this day. And now me and generations of people can walk along these paths and enjoy nature in such a way that we c- probably couldn't prior to the 1950s. So that's one example of seventh generation thinking. And so when there is this fight to prevent oil rigs from drilling in grounds without the approval of the indigenous populations, when we are dealing with yet another generation of six, seven, eight-year-olds being called the N-word in the playground, from what I've seen anecdotally, the very first time a black person is called the N-word typically happens somewhere between six and nine years old. My niece is now six. She'll be seven soon. And I'm dreading the day she comes home and asks her mommy and daddy or even me, uh, what does this, what does the N word mean? And why was I called that? I'd love to see us stop that generational pattern from occurring for yet another generation. But we can only do that if we sit still and do our inner work. The inner work isn't glamorous. It's messy. In fact, I'm not glamorous <laughs> at all. If you're looking for, for, for regalness and sophistication and glamour, you're not going to find it from me. Because the nature of this work 
when you're unpacking your unconscious biases is rooted in a process of becoming messy, of making mistakes. To do the inner work means that you sit with yourself and it's not going to be seen by 10,000 eyes, that you may be working on doing the inner work, using the guided prompts and the stream of consciousness writing to pour out what your inner oppressor was saying. And you're not going to be able to post that onto social media because it doesn't look like you're doing anything. (laughs) The process of sitting there every day and typing on your computer or using pen and paper, you know, there's nothing glamorous about it. There's nothing that, 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 that shows that you're being a hero. But that small act each day of sitting down and asking yourself, what are my unconscious biases and what do I need to unpack now? You do that every day and those small steps lead to the big breakthrough and that's in becoming a better ancestor. Then you become more cognizant of oppression and you become more aware of the ways in which you are triggered and the ways in which your biases are triggered. And so the inner field trip and the different voices I'll bring to the table you're, you're not going to know them. They're not going to be well-known people. They're not celebrities. But I've selected people who interest me because the work that they're doing is so impactful, but it's being done in a quiet way, almost looking like they're not doing anything at all. But when I bring these interviews to you, you'll see that what they're doing and what, what they're doing is something that you can model for yourself, that the work of unpacking your unconscious biases and becoming a better ancestor, it isn't noisy. It isn't noxious. (laughs) It isn't nasty. What it is, is a chance for you to sit with yourself for the very first time so that you can unpack all that baggage and that way you'll have the courage to stand on the side of justice. As I close, I want to thank you for tuning into this very first episode of the Inner Field Trip podcast. For more information about me and the resources mentioned in this episode, head on over to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Search for episode one. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely.